0: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is Sir John Hegarty. John is a, a true legend in the business. And that's a word, John, that gets thrown around quite a bit. And people love to call each other rock stars in our business. And there are very few actual, actual rock stars, many, many pretenders, few actual contenders. Uh, so John's been in the business for a very long period of time. Uh, i will i won't try to go through your resume john we'll, we'll be here for six months but uh, uh uh and i'm thrilled to correct this long overdue oversight and have you on great minds and uh we get the great pleasure of running into each other at the groucho club which we both frequent in london and uh thrilled to get a chance to talk to you today so thanks for doing this lovely looking forward to it so john i want to uh, uh go to something that you wrote pretty recently that I really liked, and you talked about the value of doing things slowly and how much gets lost in the sauce by trying to do things too quickly. And that's the way of society today, right? Nobody has any attention span, everybody's moving, everyone's distracted. Talk about that idea of allowing things to cook slowly versus trying to make every aspect of life instant coffee?
1: I think it's, it's, it's for me, it's a, it's a very good um, question to start with. I think what happens in life is, is that certain um, belief systems gain traction and people start going, you know, I want it faster, I want it now. Uh, I want it yesterday, you know, tomorrow's too late. And we live in a world which seems to worship at the altar of speed. And of course, you know, if you're a racing driver, if you're a sports person, speed is fundamentally important. But I think many things in life, speed is the opposite to value. And it destroys value, and it destroys our ability to consider and to look at what it is we're doing. So I'm challenging that concept in our industry, which is an industry of ideas, that somehow fast ideas are better than slow ideas. Uh, When all the experience and all uh, uh, the kind of... Knowledge we have shows us it's the opposite case. But because the market demands something, we all respond to it as though it's right. And the market is not always right. Let's let's establish that. I've lived, you know, a long, long time in advertising, and I've seen all kinds of businesses. The market is not always right. The consumer is not always right. This mantra that gets peddled out, and it sounds great when you say, you know, The market's always right, no it fucking isn't. Remember the crash, financial crash? I seem to remember that, that was the market at work there, blew up the world economy. That's a great idea. I remember the media business separating from the creative business in our industry. That was another shit idea, you know, but people believed in it. Um, People said, oh, that's the way to go because shorthand, they made lots of money out of it. Long-term, we all suffered. So when you come to having ideas, you know 500,000 years of human development hasn't changed in the last 20 years the ability to have an idea the ability to kind of make sure it's great that it really delivers value still takes time of course making that idea can be sped up because i've got different ways of doing things i can do lots of things faster but the actual investment in time to come up with a great idea that you should be investing in takes time and that hasn't changed and my examples are you know fast food versus slow food look what fast food is doing to the world destroying it that's great that's another great idea isn't it um and i look i used music as an example i'm not that you know i've taken some great tracks and i've said if you go back and listen to somebody who slowed them down you suddenly realize you get an awful lot more out of it. Of course, they're great stra- tracks to start with. But the one I, you know, uh, uh, start with and my example is The First Time I Ever Saw Your Face, which is the most phenomenal track. Um, and listen to uh, the slowed down version of it, which turned the track from a very average sounding piece of music into a piece of genius and a worldwide hit and uh i i think it, i was using music as an example of it but just because the world says oh i want it faster and it all sounds hugely macho and and all it's doing is mostly mostly it's fucking the world up and it's like fast fashion fast advertising is a disaster and the planet can't go on doing it
0: yeah no it's such an interesting topic You know, one of the recurring themes that uh, we hear all over the world on our stages and others is the decreasing tenure and power of the CMO. That every statistic that comes out shows that the average tenure is getting shorter and shorter, increasingly powerful procurement departments uh, on the rise. And this was sort of before digital took over just about everything. Give us your perspective on that. There were some great examples of agencies and brands that have had long tenures together. I remember years ago when Roy Spence was at GSD&M and Southwest was a client of theirs in America for decades. Talk about what you're talking about here in terms of slow and fast against, juxtaposed against that reality for the CMOs.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it, you know, I always I, I laugh at this because when I came into the advertising industry and we were pitching for business, the number of times I heard a client say, well, you know, it's very nice. I think you people are very, very good. And um, it, it's wonderful that you're here at the pitch. But if we give you our business, how many of you will be here in two years time? That was always said to us. It's now the other way around. An agency pitches for a piece of business and the the marketing director appoints them, the agency almost needs to say, it's really great, we love the fact that we've been appointed by you, but how long are you going to be here? Uh, The the roles have reversed there. And I think the problem with that is is because it doesn't really matter if the marketing director actually moves on, maybe they've done their job, they've put the house in order and then they move on. The problem we have is that the value of the marketing director isn't appreciated at the top of the company. It isn't realized that what you're doing, what this person is doing is the public face of our company. And that should be of concern to everybody from the chairman down. It shouldn't just reside on the marketing director's desk. I mean, if you look at any other kind of industry, you know, if you look at, you know who holds the franchise of the uh, the Bond franchise, for instance, the movies. It would it, it would reside at the very very top of that company. It wouldn't be kind of well. We just decide the marketing director down below decides what we're going to do this, and the marketing director decided that maybe you know 007 is a bit out of date now. Maybe we should call it 008, you know, and. We've had that end line license to kill for a very long time maybe now it should be licensed to thrill or something like that you'd be shocked when you No, no pun intended or no play on that it, it, because the value of what they have resides at the very top of the company i would argue to these companies your public persona is something that is incredibly important to that company and its position, and its understanding, and its knowledge should re- should reside at the very, very top of the company. I I can assure you that I, I never worked with um, uh, Steve Jobs. Obviously now, that's an impossibility. But I can assure you at the top of that company, there was a great understanding of what the public persona of that organization was. And it wouldn't be just relegated to the marketing director. I find it incredible that, that these things can chop and change the way they are because a new marketing director has come in and said, well, I don't like all that. We're going to start again. We're going to do something else. And it's madness. I mean, but that's a lack of understanding of what a modern company is and how its value is perceived. So it's a, it's a criticism really of the the whole company structure.
0: Yeah. And, and and a well-warranted criticism. All right, so we're going to come back to this, but let's let's dial the clock back a little bit and and delve into some of uh, your journey and how you got to where we are today and and I love what you're doing with the business of creativity, which I want to talk about also, you are still uh, Sir john very much at the top of your game. Matt is John, by the way. Don't, don't I, you know. I'm a respectful uh, You're uh, very nice. It's kind right, of you. Man. All right. All right. <laughs> it's John. Come There on, you come go. On. There you go. So New York, I know, played a pretty important role for you early on. Your uh, work came out of the uh, art and graphic design world. But can we talk about the role that my hometown, New York, played in early days for you?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I would, you know, the reason I got into the, the advertising is I went to art school, and from art school, I went to design school. I went because I was at art school, I thought I'd be the next Picasso. Sadly, I was informed by a very, very wise and uh, 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 good teacher, a man called Peter Green. John, I, I, I really don't think you're going to be the next Picasso, but I've observed you seem to like having ideas. Why don't you go and study graphic design and uh, the best place to do that in london is a wonderful college called the london college of printing so i did that i took this teacher's advice peter's advice and you know i loved having ideas i loved the concept of the back of the of a blank page but when i got to design school i found everybody was kind of wanted to go back to art school they were talking about shades of blue and should you use a serif face versus a sans serif face and i I liked all those things, but I kept wandering around saying, but what's the idea? What, what, what are we here to do? And they, you know, graphic designers at that point would sort of look at me in a strange way and say, what are you on about? Idea, what do you mean? I, I design, you know. And at that moment in time, I then met another wonderful teacher, a man called John Gillard, who showed me the work that came out of uh, DDB in New York for Volkswagen. And it, it really, really was, Matt, like a, a, a switch being thrown on in a darkened room. I looked at this work, you know, for Volkswagen and what they were doing for Avis and all the accounts that they had there. And I thought, this is absolute genius. I mean, I, I, I looked at it and I thought, you know, it's smart, it's clever, it's sharp, but it's also inclusive and it's funny. And, it, and it, people talk about it. And I said, that's what I want to do. And at that moment in time, I kind of decided, right, I'm not going to do graphic design. I'm really going to do advertising. I'm going to kind of develop an advertising portfolio and begin to work in in the advertising industry. And so, you know, I I became a great advocate of, of what was coming out of New York and, you know, used to sort of eagerly await the latest campaign from DDB and what they were doing. And. George Lois and Mary Wells and these wonderful, wonderful people who are just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And it was a great, great influence on me. And uh, I'm forever grateful for it. And, and you know, when I eventually went to New York and worked there in the beginning of 99, just loved being there and just sort of, you know, although nobody else was left in Madison Avenue. And it was a very different business by then. But, the echoes of that world were still there, and I, I loved it. But it was a huge influence on me. And uh, to this day, I, I talk about what Bernbach did. And, you know, I, I, I've always said, and I wrote this in my book on advertising, I thought it was genius about the man. If you think about this, made his name selling this German car, all right, the Volkswagen. 19, appointed about 1962, German economy is on its knees, post-war, what are they going to do? How are they going to rebuild this economy? Car industry, fundamental to a modern uh, uh, Western economy. The only product they've got is this car that was inspired by Adolf Hitler, who did, did his best to exterminate 6 million Jews. And Germany has to go to this Jewish advertising man in New York and help them rebuild their economy and I think my admiration to Burnbank for doing that and doing it brilliantly, what a gift he gave germany a, a, a Jew helped rebuild the German economy after they tried to destroy them and I thought that for me was the biggest picture of that campaign and i I've always reflected on it and thought, oh my God, you no, know, people talk about things small and all the that's the big story behind that and I thought it was remarkable and I thought he was a remarkable man and a friend of mine worked there and met him and knew him reasonably well and I, I I'm I, one of my great sadnesses I never got to meet him yeah
0: yeah I, I I've stayed close to Keith Reinhardt and he has all those yeah. great great stories of, of uh, he's a yeah, lovely he, man
1: isn't he Keith I, I, I I've met him at yeah, Cannes yeah. and yeah, he, he tells that lovely story about Think Small. And he said, when everybody talk about that, they always forget that actually it was responding in a way to a campaign that IM, IBM were running at the time, which was Think Big. Yeah. And he said there was a big, huge campaign by IBM, Think Big. And they came out and said, Think Small. And it was like a response to that. Of course, history forgets that. And it just looks at it as, a, oh, I see they're talking about us. Of course, they're talking about a small car but it's power came out of the fact that there was this campaign about IBM, you know, think big.
0: And and it goes back to what you were talking about earlier about, you know, it's less about, you know, typeface selection, but more about the power of the idea.
1: Power of the idea. And then of course, too, you know, I, I do say, you know, advertising's 80% idea. It's also 80% execution. And, and, you know, they both infect each other. Where does one stop start? There's a kind of lovely symbiotic relationship between those two things. But you start with the idea, not a typeface. Uh, and, of course, you know, the great art directors that developed that and Helmut Krohn and people like that who, who made it happen. It's just, just wonderful.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about a name uh, that uh, doesn't get talked about very much anymore, and that's Charles Satchi. One of the uh, uh, crossover points, if you will, uh, uh, in our lives, is when the Saatchi building opened up, John, in 1980, I'm going to say 1987 on Hudson Street, my chairman at the time was the Saatchi, as you know, was uh, created by rolling up a number of agencies. Yeah. And one of them was uh, a great American creative shop, Dancer Fitzgerald Sample, long gone. And great name for an agency,
1: isn't it? Dancer Fitzgerald sub I mean, it's almost out of Hollywood, isn't it? The dancer is obviously the account man. Fitzgerald is obviously the writer, and Sample is obviously, obviously in in planning and research. What a you know, it's a magical uh, absolutely name.
0: Absolutely <laughs> right. And and so my chairman, I was running the sports commission for New York at that time, under a great mayor, Ed Koch. And our chairman was a guy named Gary Sussjara, who's no longer around. Gary was one of the many presidents. It was His uh, shop was called Sachi and Sachi DFS Compton. And when the, Saatchi, when the Saatchi building opened on Hudson Street, I was in some really shitty office, a uh, municipal office downtown. And Gary said, I'll get you an office with me. The building just opened. It's beautiful. There's an office down the hall from me. And I said, Gary, I don't have permission to move. I was 23 years old. And he said, well, everybody in the city leaves at five o'clock. Just wait till five after five and leave. And all my <laughs> possessions fit in one small box at that time. And I, li- I literally no, but- left, went to an office in the Sachi building. Talk about oh, those early days uh, with Charles, which goes back to about 1970. I know you were there, give or take, three or four years, but give us some remembrances of that part of your tenure with Charles.
1: Well, there's a, the, the great thing with, with Charles, is, uh, and this, there's a sort of nice background to this, is that uh, I came into advertising in 1965. I was offered two jobs. Uh, one of them was at Young and Rubicum. Uh, which was going to pay a thousand pounds a year, which I, I am now talking 1965, everybody. Don't worry. The Beatles were just about to release help. That gives you an idea. Um, and the other job was at Benson and Bowles, uh, a long gone agency. And uh, they were going to pay me half the amount. Oh, that's interesting. Is this going to make my decision? I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, well, I said, what should I do? And he said, well, I actually would go to Benson Bowles, even though they're going to pay you half the amount, because a great American art director is going over to run the department, a man called Dan Cromer. And, you know, I think his advice was, go for the opportunity, not the money. And that stayed with me all my life then. Go for the opportunity, not the money. So I did. I, I went and I said, I'll take your advice. And I went to Benson Bowles. And I was there for about a week. The then creative director, a man called uh Jack Stanley walks into my office and he goes, I found a writer for you to work with. So this is like 1965, you know, young art director. We were called assistant art directors then, not, not art directors. And he said, I've got this um writer, young writer to work with you. I think it'll be great. And I said, Oh, you know, what's his name? And he said, Charles Sacchi. And I went to myself, oh God. And I thought, oh no, he's Italian lives at home with mum and he can't spell, I bet. That's my luck to get a writer like that. And of course, Charles joins, he wasn't Italian, but he did live at home with mum and he wasn't very good at spelling. So I was right on two of them, but he was a brilliant, brilliant writer. And we developed a great relationship and uh, we worked together for some year, a year or so. And then he went off with another art director to CDP Collets, And then when he set his consultancy up, he said, would I go and join them? And I did, and that was like 1967. And out of that became the agency. But the point about Charlie, the one thing that he was absolutely brilliant at, well, well, there are two things. One, when you work with him, he had this ability of focus on this is the problem, this is what we've got to solve. You deal with people and often when you're trying to resolve something, they drift off and they talk about other things and they get confused. And this is, Charlie had this razor sharp mind. That's the issue we're trying to resolve. Put your attention towards that. So you had that sort of clarity of thinking, which I thought was brilliant. The other thing he had, which I also thought was, and and I've learned a huge amount from that, and I take it into my work, is he created, when people worked around them, He made them all feel they could do better. He just said, by being with us, you're going to be better. And he made people believe that. And I thought that was a tremendous quality that he had. And uh, all sorts of other things about Charles, which are mad and crazy and, you know, but those two things I've, I've learned so much from that ability, one razor like focus on what the problem is. Don't, you know, people would all drift. I mean, what about this? And what about that? And, uh, and also when you're setting a company up and you'll get make the people around you feel they can do better and they will. And that's, I, I thought a brilliant, brilliant quality. And, uh, and that's why I think he did incredibly well. He built a culture where people who went there thought this is it. I really am now at the pinnacle of my career. This is where I'm going to really be able to do the things I want to do. And of course, the other thing he always would do was if he worked on ideas and you worked on ideas, he would buy the best idea, even if he hadn't had it. But he, he determined in the end, you know, I'm going to get the credit anyway. Why would I stand in the way of a, of a, of a great idea? And uh, so he had that. And again, that's that clarity of thinking so brilliant in that sense wonderful person to work around and and to kind of be
0: with fantastic stuff let's divert just for a second because you mention mention the word culture and one of the things that bbh which you co-founded with john and nigel going back to 1982 and almost four decades you had a great culture I worry today, John, about business and creative industry in particular, creating and managing culture in an age of remote work. What are your thoughts on that topic?
1: I think it is. Again, I go back to kind of, you can't change human nature that much. There are fundamentals, principles remain, practices change is my constant, quid occur, you know, that you you can't change basic facts. Creativity needs interaction, it needs um, cooperation, it needs stimulation, it needs all those things. And cultures create an opportunity for you to do what you want to do. They give you permission. And it's so important when you're setting a a creative company up as opposed to a call centre. You know who gives a shit about the culture in a call cool centre? You go in the morning. Is the coffee good? Is it hot? Um, do I get a break at the right time? And and do I get paid the right amount of money? And can I go home when I want to? When you're setting a creative culture up, when you're setting a creative company up, you're you're trying to create magic. Essentially, that's what you're doing. Nothing nothing changes. You're trying to create magic. You know, it's why I call my book turning you know intelligence into magic the intelligence is the strategy the magic is the creative work to do that you need a kind of environment that gives you permission that that gives you time that gives you encouragement that says don't worry you know okay you haven't had a great idea don't go for a walk you know go walk around the block see things go to that exhibition look at that And you need to be around people to encourage you to do that. If you're at home, it's very lonely. If you're staying, you know, if everything's done on Zoom, it's very kind of alienating. And creativity is about putting you in touch with people. And it needs a culture to engender that, to drive that, to make sure it happens, to make sure you've got permission to have that mad idea and nobody is going to criticize you. Nobody's going to laugh at you because it's out of that mad idea that something genius may actually happen. And I, I've always said, you know, when I run kind of, you know, we've we, we talked about a brief or something like that and people are struggling and, and I, I'd walk in with a mad idea. What about, look, this is completely mad. Why don't we have everybody upside down in the ad and uh, we say, you know, uh, one day you'll see it the right way. I mean, it was something completely stupid. Not because I wanted them to do that, because I sort of said, let's start with a completely bonkers idea. But out of that starts a conversation, and from that you get to doing something. But that only happens when you have a supportive culture. And it's why great artists and thinkers and all that congregated. Why they all went to Paris in the 20s. Why the Bauhaus? Uh, did what it did and its its impact is rippling through society even now you know, from the 20s you know, those things were important because people came together and shared things and ideas and you know, I, I was very lucky going to art school, I, my brother also went to art school, and he went to St. Martin's in the Charing Cross Road and you'd go into that art school and you, you I used to see him, you'd go into the common room and you'd see the fashion students were talking to the painters the painters were talking to the sculptors the sculptors were talking to fabric the people who designed fabric and textiles and and this wonderful and it was like fame you know that great movie that alan parker everybody was kind of doing stuff together but it had to be together you know you couldn't post it in you couldn't phone it in you couldn't go hello i'm on the end of the phone here what do you think about this idea don't know didn't understand it you had to kind of live off that kind of energy that was there. You plunged into it and you, you know, you don't bump into people on zoom uh, and you do So I think it's, you know, the way I've likened it People say, yeah, but I'm productive. I'm doing that. And I always say, yeah, yeah. You know, you can switch the engine off a of Boeing 747 at 33,000 feet going across the Atlantic. And, you know, you don't hear anything. Nothing happens. It's lovely. It's nice and quiet. Oh, that's nice and quiet, isn't it? I'll switch the engine off. You keep going. In about 15 minutes, you crash. Um, and, and that's why, you know, in a sense, constantly investing in your culture is important. Of course, people go home and they say, it's great. I'm on Zoom and I can do so much. And, but gradually, culture is diminishing. The permission to do things, the, the, the growth in your own creative output will diminish. You won't see it straight away. But I can guarantee you it will.
0: I I couldn't agree more. And I think it's a real concern uh, for business and for young people and their own growth. Totally. I mean, you know, learning from, you know,
1: just being around people, seeing how they talk to people, seeing how when somebody says, oh, I don't like that, how do they respond to that? What do they go? they go? They don't do they go, you know, screw you or something. No, they go, oh, that's interesting. What do you do? That? And they can see how people deal with issues. And we're developing a sadly a whole kind of generation of people who are withdrawing from life. Well, if you're a creative person, how can you withdraw from life? The very purpose of creativity is make connections. The very purpose of creativity is to convince. The very purpose of creativity is to drive society forward the great thinkers think about them you know what do they do what did Picasso do what did Leonardo da Vinci do they were kind to drive society forward how can you do that if you withdraw from society it's a nonsense yeah of course it's convenient you don't have to you know get an under a subway or whatever you want to call it or a train or get in but you know yeah sometimes life is a bit hard
0: but it pays rewards. It, it, it certainly does. And, and this whole notion of, you know, the utilitarian nature of Zoom allowing you and I to, you know, look at each other while we're having this conversation. So there's certainly value there. But the definition of, of what we're doing right now is it's something that appears on our calendar that's scheduled. And I'm sure you'll agree that most of the most wonderful things that have happened in your business life and your personal life have been unscheduled. And just happen, happen by chance.
1: Serendipity is the mo- and and who wants to live in a scheduled world? I don't. You know, I always remember there was a interesting interview with um, now, of course, King Charles. He was then Prince Charles, and the interviewer asked him. He said, "So, what is it about your life that is disappointing?" And he he was very diplomatic, and he said, "The thing that's." really difficult for me is um, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing a year and a half from now on that Thursday at three o'clock my life has been measured out for me there is no chance of something happening and I could do something different there will be no chance encounter that I can go that would be wonderful yes let's do that let's go there let's make that and he said that's the thing that is hardest for me to deal with and here we are trying to kind of you know live that kind of way I'll schedule a meeting oh god those words you know oh my god three words schedule a meeting I just you know you, you get deeply depressed when you hear
0: them you and me both so all right so let's let's go back uh again just for a moment so you leave Charles and Saatchi it's always going to be his place, not yours. You join TBWA and you meet two gentlemen who would sort of change the yep. course of your future.
1: They did indeed. So um, it was very interesting. Actually, I wasn't looking to leave um, Charlie. I mean, I, I liked it and I, I I was a bit concerned about where I could see it going because I think Charlie at that time then had gone for growth. He wanted to be the biggest in the world. And I thought, I'm not necessarily sure I want to be the biggest. I'd like to be the best, but I'm not sure I want to be the biggest. And is big good, you know. And he had the view that big was good. It was his name above the door, not mine. And anyway, I got this phone call from Bill Tragos. Would I go and meet him? And, and, uh, you know, he wanted to open a London office. And... uh, would I sort of think about becoming the credit director? Long story short, I did, I met him, and I thought it was really interesting, actually, with his point of view. And uh, I did. And that's where I met John and Nigel. they were originally six partners. We One of them rapidly left. But John, Nigel, and myself rapidly became the kind of the driving force in the agency. And we developed a wonderful relationship with each other, and, and we, you know, Nigel Boga was a brilliant account man. John Bartle was a phenomenal planner and thinker. And obviously I was on the creative side. And I think what made it work for us is one, we, we actually liked each other. But I think also we respected each other's skills. We didn't, you know, I didn't try and tell Nigel how to be a better account man, or I didn't tell John how to rewrite a strategy. John didn't tell me how to rewrite a kind of an ad, and Nigel didn't say, you know, do what the client says. And we respected what we had to do. And I think that was part of our success. And, and John Bartley was who made the observation, a very wise man, John. He sort of said, Do you know I think advertising agencies are a bit like bands? They have a kind of 10-year moment when they'll be great. But the great ones go on because The lead singer doesn't try and tell the bass guitarist how to play bass guitar. And the bass guitarist doesn't tell the drummer how he should work. And the drummer doesn't tell the lead singer, I think I could sing better than you. And you can see how bands break up when that dynamic breaks down, the lack of respect for each other. It happens again and again and again and again. And it was a very interesting observation. Think of yourself like a band. You probably have 10 years. But you'll you'll succeed beyond that if you go on respecting what each other does, and uh, you know in the end the Rolling Stones are still, you know, are oh, just about going around the world singing jumping jack flash. But they're doing it because in the end, you know, if you keep read Keith Richards' book, you know Mick was going to be the singer and Keith was going to be lead guitarist, and uh, they didn't try and tell each other what to do, and and I think that was that's a great lesson in how. You survive as a business. Look at other industries. Look at what they do and see how they work and see how they make things happen, especially in the creative world. And I think looking at bands as a, as a sort of culture of how they succeed is very important. And, so, and it shows you how. It's why Pink Floyd broke up because, you know, Roger Waters thought he should do everything. And the others went, well, no, I've got a point of view. And in the end, it, it broke up and... Sadly, uh, they don't perform together anymore because of that.
0: Yeah. You know, you you led me exactly where I wanted to go. And I was thinking of uh, sustained excellence, that notion. My wife and I went and saw the Eagles last night. And, And on the drive, I played her the new Stone single that's out, Angry, which is the first track released off their new Hackney Diamonds album. And you go back to those days and and you were there. I i love the story about, you know, Keith pulling up in front of the marquee club late for a gig, left his car in the middle of Water Street, gets on stage, blocking traffic, somebody says, Whose car is that? And it was Keith.
1: <laughs> yeah. They were great. They were
0: great. Yeah. And we're we're well north of sixty years now of sustained yeah. excellence. Yeah. BBH had that same sustained excellence our industry is an industry mm-hmm. where someone will get hot for a little while and generally speaking it doesn't last you know i i love chuck porter there was a moment where crispin porter bogusky in america in particular there was nobody hotter than they were not mm-hmm. able brilliant not not able yeah. to sustain it talk about that notion of sustained excellence and you you touched on it a little bit by you know you and john and nigel sort of all staying in your lanes but that's not easy to do in any industry and it's been particularly challenging to do in our industry on the creative side
1: i think it's a it's a very interesting question that and i i you know you get asked it quite a bit and i think that first of all you have to respect each other because without that then Nothing has uh, will never survive. I think the other thing too is we always said at BBH, you know, the the phrase we kept using was all roads lead to the work. The only thing that we cared about was the work. And again, I was very lucky in having two partners who, you know, Nigel and John, as a cowman and planner, both loved great work. It gave them great pride and satisfaction when they saw us creating, you know, award-winning work that was effective and clients loved it and that. And we, because we constantly had that as our mantra, you know, the work, the work, the work, all roads lead to the work. We were focused on that. We weren't focused on becoming the biggest. That was, you know, going back to my Charlie thing. Charlie wanted to be the biggest. And, And again, I'm not being critical of that. That was his vision the danger in that is it it then it isn't about the work it's just about size and you just do everything you can to get bigger and bigger and bigger and it doesn't focus on what got you there or what will possibly get you there which is the work that you produce so it was that focus on on the work which kept us going i mean we would constantly have people come to us and say hey we think you should buy that company and merge with them and do that and, and you may right. and the question we always said we question we always asked the three of us would always say say will this make the work better and if, if it wouldn't then we say well why are we doing it yes it might make you bigger you might if you bought that kind of you know company who does whatever they might do it might make you more money but will it wait make the work better if you couldn't say unequivocally, yes, then we didn't do it. So that focus, one having respect for each other, respect for the talents of each other, and liking each other actually was important. But that focus on the work, the work, the work, was the thing that sustained us. And because of that, then everything ripples out of that. So there was no politics in BBH. I mean, I'm sure some people would say, oh, yes, there was, John. But actually, because it was all about the work, Nobody was saying the way to get forward in BBH is to sort of align yourself with that point of view. The way to get ahead in BBH was to create great work and be about creating great work and driving great work. So you knew what your path to kind of success at BBH was. If the work was great, you had a great chance to get on and, and be more successful there. So everybody was focused in the right direction. Everybody was focused at doing one thing, which was producing... Work that really got talked about and moved brands, and you know, uh, uh, got us the accolades that we needed, and that sustained us. That was it. It was as simple as that. And you can see how it goes wrong in companies. You can see how, you know, all of a sudden they don't talk so much about the work. They talk about something else, or they talk about the number of offices we have around the world, or you know, we've got you know these research companies and we can we've got access to all this data and you go yeah 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 but why don't you talk about the work and that's what makes the difference it's your calling card and the other thing and last thing i like to say, the one thing i always observed and you learn this again and again and again is a great idea solves all kinds of problems it really does you know i always think You know, the the agency might be down. we would lost some pitches and people feeling a bit low and that. And then, you know, a, a piece of work, a rough cut of the latest ad comes in or something. And it's brilliant. And everybody looks at it and goes, oh, my God, have you just seen that? I can't wait for that to go out. And, of course, it changes everything. So, you know, on Tuesday, everybody can be really depressed. And, you know, we lost that pitch. That didn't work. And then on Thursday, you see a rough cut of a great piece of work and everybody goes home for the weekend feeling fantastic and we're on top of the world again. And it's the same with the company. A great piece of thinking changes everything. You know, Steve Jobs, look what he did at Apple. You know, Apple Mac. Boom, what a great yeah. idea that was and look how it changed that company. And you forget and, and when you've been around that and you've seen it and you felt it, you just want to transmit that to other people. A great idea solves all kinds of problems.
0: The decision to sell the company must have been a difficult one for you. It was a long time coming. You built a global footprint. I know there was a strategic relationship uh, with Burnett and Starcom early before the whole enchilada was sold to publicists and you and your partners uh, were bought out in 2012. Talk about that, uh, that moment, the emotional part for you and John and Nigel of, uh, you know, uh, at some point, I've been at Advertising Week now, it'll, you know, we're getting close to 25 years. That's a long run. At some point, you think this will end.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, John retired, or well, not retired, he went on to do other things at the end of 99. So it was, ju- it was right. Nigel and I. To go back to put that into context, We decided in about 95, 96, that the business is going to go global. That, you know, being a a UK, London-based agency, yet wonderful, but actually, because of technology, the ability to cross borders, you know, we had MTV and things like that. And we could see that what was going to happen is it was going to turn into a global business and that if we didn't have some kind of global presence, then we, we would just you know, go backwards. So the decision was made that we should start developing offices in other parts of the world. To make that viable, to to, to sort of be able to do that, we needed a media partner. We needed a partner that could be alongside us, that could deliver what clients needed, because there is a practical, yes, you can have the ideas, but you've also, there is a process to, uh, to delivering that work as well. And so... Nigel has had a long relationship with Leah Burnett. We had a high regard for Starcom as a global media player. So we spoke to Burnett and said, look, told them what we were thinking of doing. But, you know, we'd like to partner with Starcom. But obviously we weren't going to just give them our business, that they would have to buy it, so to speak, because we were going to hand all these accounts to them and get nothing back for it. So we 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 crafted a deal with Leo Burnett where they bought 49% of the company so that we could have this um, uh, relationship with Starcom that made it meaningful and we could develop a, a global network, which we did. And it worked incredibly well. And then at about 2000, so that was 96, 97, and it was working incredibly well. And then Burnett announced that they were going to sell to publicists and, um, you know, would we like to be a part of that sale? Or We had an agreement that if they changed the structure of the company, we had the right to buy ourselves back out. There was a formula for it and everything. And because it was working so well, we kind of went, well, you know, you've got 49%. We still have 51%. Therefore, we control the company. Um, we've done very well with it. And we like working with Starcom. So we're going to continue the relationship. So we we kind of found ourselves with publicists owning 49% of the company. And that continued, and it we met Maurice Levy and liked him and, you know, had a lovely conversation with him and talked about what we're doing. And again, because he was a 49% shareholder, that was it. You know, it was great, you know, it suited us. And at the back of our minds also was this thing about, well, one day we're going to have to, Nigel and I are going to have to sort of, you know, exit that that comes to everybody how can we do so in a way which protects what we've built because we weren't just going to flog it off and so the relationship with publicist went on and you know it was really great and then we came to the point where both Nigel and I were saying "Look, we've got to you know I'm getting older you're getting older we've got a younger generation coming through I mean we did talk about would they like to buy the company would they like to do it there wasn't an appetite to do that all kinds of reasons, I suppose, and we had the agreement with publicists that if we wanted to do something, that we obviously naturally would talk to them first. So we opened up the conversation with Maurice, and we came up with a solution. Long story short, of creating that they would buy all of uh, the rest of the, the shares, but they would create autonomy within that within the publicist network, we would have autonomy as long as. We hit certain profit targets, and uh, we sustained that over a period of time. And those profit targets weren't onerous; they were, you know, very reasonable. those things that we had been doing, so we negotiated a deal with publicists that was autonomy within that gave them the right not to be merged in with somebody else, or them t- suddenly coming and saying, "Well, we've got this agency in I don't know wherever, and we think we should merge with you." And so we protected the agency in that sense and we withdraw because eventually you do have to go and um it's 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 always hard that but i i think it happened over a period of time so i you know it wasn't an immediate thing it was a gradual process and you live with it but we tried to leave it in a good place and i think we did and i think that's why it's gone on and you know, it's been tough for lots of agencies, but I think they're in a good yeah, place. Yeah, no,
0: you certainly, uh, that old uh, uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker song comes to mind, Built to Last, and, and you really did. And, and your passion for creativity, and uh, I have such admiration for what you've done in this, you know, in this part of your career, more recently at the Garage Soho and with the business of creativity. Uh, you may have left the the name on the door behind, but you as a creative force, John, you've continued. And that's just tremendous, just tremendous.
1: Well, thank you. That's very kind. I mean, I, I think actually, as, as I said, you know, creativity isn't an occupation, it's a preoccupation. You don't stop doing it. You know, it's like, you know, we talked about Mick Jagger and Keith Richard. They go on being what, that's what they do. You know, David Hockney goes on painting. He's eighty-five, and you know he's very, very frail. But he goes on. That's, that's what you do. And so I've I've always believed in that. And so I, I you know, did this uh, the, the garage here in Soho. We we an early stage investment company, and we try and get ideas off the ground and find them finance and advise them on building a brand. But out of the what happened is the, the, the COVID lockdown. I was being constantly asked, would I talk to major organisations about creativity? And I'd, you know, give them a talk over Zoom and uh, it would be great and I really enjoyed doing that. And my my mission is to get the world to be more creative and I'll talk a bit about that. But out of this, I I sort of went, you know, I'm I'm only scratching the surface here. It's such a, and I was lucky going to art school and design school, I have a knowledge of it and the history of of art and all those things. I should really do this properly, and I thought I must help these companies kind of understand the value of creativity. But it can't be done in forty minutes. So we sketched out with my partners here an eight-part eight um, uh, program talking about creativity, and I, I wanted—I called it the, the business of creativity because it's for businesses. And just as I was doing that, McKinsey come out with this report saying that those businesses that actively engage with creativity create better returns for their shareholders. So here's me on one hand, a little me going, creativity is fundamentally important for the future of business. And, you know, um, uh, I'm just changing something there. Good. And uh, McKinsey are going, you've got to, you know, your businesses have got to engage with this. So I call it the business of creativity, getting businesses to try and understand that creativity isn't something that you occasionally bring into your business. Oh, it is core and central to your operation. In fact, the idea of starting a business is a creative act. You, know, you have to have an idea. What are you gonna call it? What are you gonna do? What are you gonna, you know, what's it gonna be named? How what's it gonna look like? All these are creative decisions. And getting people to understand that creativity, we're all creative is isn't, you know, I spent my life with people saying, oh, John, you're creative. No, 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 we're all creative. And getting people to feel at ease with it is the most important thing. Getting them to understand it. So the eight lectures, talks, I don't like calling them lectures because hopefully they're good fun, um, are there to kind of take you through, define creativity, define the two types of creativity. What is it, the foundation of creativity? What drives it? how to kind of have simple tools that help you deal with creative meetings. is all part of this talk. And at the end of each talk, I interview somebody from the world of commerce who has actively engaged with creativity and made it work. So for instance, Greg Hoffman, ex CMO of Nike and brilliant written a book. I interview him about how Nike engaged with it. So it's, it's, a, it's a sort of series of talks for literally any business you know if you if you make you know elastic bands or something it would be a value to as well as obviously if you're in the world of you know you use a lot of communications and you're in that world as well it works for all of those people just to try and get people to understand that you know every day you're engaging with creativity without realizing it the more you understand it the more you're going to get out of it i suppose My analogy is, as I say to people, you know, if I had the keys of the latest Ferrari and and I said, you know, look, it's a Ferrari outside. You hear the keys, go and drive it. And you couldn't drive. You wouldn't get in it, would you? You might not get into that. But if you can drive, you take it for a drive and you'd enjoy it. So it's a bit like that with creativity that if you understand it, you understand the definition of creativity, you understand all those different aspects of it. You'd engage with it much more, and actually, it would be good for your business. And and every day, you know, it would help you with you know innovation, the difference between innovation and creativity. How do you deploy people on tasks? All of those things would get better, and you'd have a better company. Yes. So that's the background. Uh,
0: I, I love it, and you have a new module coming up.
1: We do. It starts on October sixteenth, and we do it over an eight-week period. The reason we do it in blocks is that I then out of it will come questions and things like that. So I then weekly ask, ask questions that are sent to me and I do a live sort of you know, uh, panel with people and just talk about the questions that have come up and this is what you should do with that. And they're good questions and I get asked some great, great questions. So it's, it's interactive as well as you're able to do it at your own speed at your own time. But we do it over an eight-week period, eight, eight, eight sessions, eight weeks. And it's fun. And the other thing I do is, I, I said something the other day, in a way, again, because I've lived a creative life, understanding creativity and engaging with it is like therapy as well. It's great. It's not only practical guidance. It's not only helpful in your business. It's actually therapy for your life, too. Because the more you understand those things, the more you're going to understand Everything about life, because everything about life is touched by creativity and understanding that and knowing that, you know, you get more out of a walk, you know, you get more out of you know, seeing a movie, you get more out of that plate of food you're going to eat. Why? You know, you, you'd be able to ask all kinds of questions without realizing it. And that's the value of creativity. Oh, my God.
0: So, so well said. And, and in spending this time with you is certainly therapeutic for me, John. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. This was such a joy.
1: Well, Matt, lovely. I'm, I'm sorry I could go on talking forever about this because I'm passionate about it. But the last thing I would say to everybody, the future is creative. There's no question. That is the final thing that's been left for us to do is to be more creative. And the more you engage with that, the happier you're going to be. No
0: questions. John, I hope to see you soon and be in your company. It's always a, always Matt, a joy. And thanks for being here.
1: Love it. And see you at the Groucho. Bye, Matt. Lovely. Love to everyone. Cheers. Bye.